From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, the war journalist who told stories too dangerous to tell. In the chaos of war, there's often a vacuum of information. War correspondents risk their lives to report on conflict and the people whose lives are upended by strife. I'm at ground zero, and I'm seeing what is being hit. Jonathan, there's been absolutely ferocious shelling. The American journalist Marie Colvin, who wrote for the Sunday Times, was one of those correspondents. Over three decades, she reported from East Timor, Chechnya, the Palestinian territories, across North Africa, and other places. She lost an eye during Sri Lanka's civil war, and then lost her life, reporting from deep in Syria, in a suburb under siege, with thousands of civilian casualties. In the clinic today, if you can even call it that, it's an apartment. Um, it has two operating tables and a dentist and a doctor. Um, there was a, a tiny baby, well, one year old, um, naked, uh, hit in the left chest. The doctors uh, just said, we, we can't do anything. And if Colvin's life sounds like something out of a movie, that's not far off the mark. It's the subject of a new documentary, Under the Wire, and it was dramatized this year in the film A Private War. In it, Colvin is played by Rosamund Pike. I hate being in a war zone, but I also feel compelled to see it for myself. Over the years of her work, Colvin suffered from PTSD, failed marriages, and other troubles. Her readers didn't see that side of her, but Lindsay Hilson did. Hilson, of the UK's Channel 4 News, was a friend and a colleague. She reported from some of the same conflict zones as Colvin, and now she has meticulously documented her friend's life for the new book, In Extremis. Lindsay Hilson is our guest this week. Lindsay, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're here to talk about Marie Colvin, of course, and I'd actually love for you to start by telling us about how you first met her. So... I'm a foreign correspondent for British television channel 4 News, and Marie worked for the Sunday Times. We first met in 1998. That was really when we became friends. War had broken out between Ethiopia and Eritrea in the Horn of Africa, and we were both in Djibouti, which happens to be the hottest place on earth. There were Ukrainian pilots flying a Somali plane, ferrying people out and journalists in. And as we walked over to the plane, we sort of ended up walking together and we sat next to each other on the plane. And the plane taxied down this very sort of lumpy runway and we saw two things fly past the window. And we realised that they were our pilot's T-shirts, which they were very sweaty and they had wrung them out and hung them on the wings to dry and forgotten to put them back on again. And so we looked through the cockpit door, which was open, and yep, big fat Ukrainian pilot <laughs> flying bare-chested. And then as the plane lurched upwards, all the TV gear, which they had put unsecured at the front of the plane, slid down the aisle. And Marie and I laughed so much we were like little girls in class. Every time we caught each other's eye, we started giggling again. We were so sure we were going to die there above the Red Sea. And I think that was when we really became friends. Had you heard of her before that? Oh, yes. I mean, Marie was, uh, by then it's 1998, and Marie had a real reputation in British journalism for being braver than the rest of us and for going in further and, and staying longer. And, of course, that reputation just continued to grow in the years that that came afterwards. Let's talk about some of the places that she went and did that staying longer, going further. Where would you begin? She worked um, 
in America for a while with UPI and then in Paris. And then she joined the Sunday Times in 1986. And I think one of the key moments for her was 1987 when she was in Beirut. This was during the war in Lebanon. And there was a war within the war, the War of the Camps, they called it. There was a Palestinian refugee camp called Borja al-Barajne, which was under siege by the militia Amal. Marie and her photographer bribed an Amal commander to cease fire for one minute. Think about that, just one minute. And in that one minute, they ran across the no-man's land into the camp. It was incredibly dangerous. There were, you know, snipers in all of the, the blocks around. And they got there and... The story Marie did was about a young woman called Haji Ahmed Ali. Women would go out to get food to bring in and the snipers would pick them off on the way back in. And Haji Ahmed Ali, the morning after Marie got there, was shot on her way back into the camp carrying food for her family. And she died. This was the first time Marie had seen anything like this. And her piece about this young woman losing her fight for life was incredibly powerful, and the photographs were also incredibly powerful. And um, that story was on the front page of the Sunday Times. In those days, the Sunday Times was a very influential newspaper, and this had a massive impact because Hafez al-Assad, who sponsored the militia, he in turn was sponsored by Gorbachev, and Gorbachev at that point, towards the crumbling of the Soviet Union, was influenced by Western political pressure. Within three days, the siege of Borja the war of the camps, was over. And I think that Marie really felt that her journalism had had an impact, and she was right. It had an impact. There's a little detail in her copy how the woman had these little gold earrings, and they reminded Marie of a pair of earrings she had bought for her own younger sister, Kat. But the real thing was that this story had had an impact and had been part of bringing about an end of that siege. That had a huge impact on Marie herself. And I think it speaks to something you talk a lot about in the book, which is that people aren't numbers, that she really wants to get at the idea of the individuals themselves and that that allows the story to be told but also understood. And I think that that's right. And One of the things about writing the book was that I had access to Marie's diaries and notebooks. She left 300 notebooks, some of which are just ordinary reporter's notebooks, the kind I would keep where, you know, you describe what you see and take down notes on an interview. But others are very intimate. And it's very interesting that in 1982, she went to Paris for the first time. She was um, a young journalist. She had just graduated. And she went to the D-Day beaches and she went to the museum there. And she wrote in her diary about just looking at all this stuff. She thought about the individual experience of a soldier amongst the mass movement of war. I think that was her beginning to work out her method. And that's how she reported all her life. But that scene in Beirut also speaks to something else, which is that she takes tremendous risk. And sometimes risk that people think is too far. Oh, definitely. Marie believed that you couldn't report war properly without taking risks. She said, unless you want to report it from NATO headquarters, and in her view, that was not the place that you should report war from. And she believed very strongly that you have to get really close. And she believed that you had to really, you know, eat with people, live as they lived, go through the dangers that they go through. And that was how you got a compelling story and how you got a story that could potentially make a difference. And that was really her creed all her life. 
She does something else that's really fascinating, though, as well, which is that she becomes close with some of the major leaders of the Arab world, many of whom are fully marginalized from the conversations with the West. How did she do that? Well, she got a break in 1986 when she was still with UPI and she got to interview Gaddafi on the eve of the Reagan bombings. And it was well known that Gaddafi was somewhat predatory and he would much rather give an interview to a young woman than to a man. And I mean, Marie had to negotiate that. But he kind of grew to know her and trust her. And she, Marie always loved clothes. So Gaddafi was a gift, you know, describing Gaddafi with his gold cape and his lizard skin slippers and his padded grey flight suit and sometimes that crazy military uniform with all the medals across it. But he accepted her. I mean, she asked him you know, quite difficult questions. It was quite hard to get a news line out of him. Gaddafi was somewhat different, I mean, uh, from Arafat. Arafat was really portrayed in the West, particularly in America, then just as a terrorist. And Marie wanted to find out more. And one of her editors said to me that one of the strengths of Marie's reporting was that she showed these leaders as individuals, as men. And that was, you know, this is... The CIA always wants to know what makes a person tick. And journalists in those days were not really doing enough to try and get into that. There was a rather bland way of of looking at these leaders. And Marie went right inside. And she managed to do that because she had incredible stamina for drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes and also drinking black coffee. So she would spend... Long nights with Bassam Abu Sharif, who was one of Arafat's aides, drinking, smoking, waiting, waiting. Because Arafat would only ever give interviews at like 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning. Lots of journalists did get to interview him, but Marie interviewed him more than 20 times. And he grew to trust her, but she asked him difficult questions. I mean, there was one occasion when she was asking him about his tolerance or sponsorship of terrorism. And she could hear his aides cocking their weapons in the room. Arafat stormed out of that interview. Um, But he gave her another interview sometime later. So, you know, she managed to build those relationships, but without becoming a stooge or a patsy. I think it's an interesting juxtaposition then between that on-the-ground scene in Beirut um, and then, I mean, we should move on to East Timor, for example. She's in these scenes that are often overlooked or seemingly impenetrable by other Western journalists. And she's telling the story of an individual 20-year-old who dies in front of her, but also meeting with the leaders of these countries. Talk to me about that juxtaposition. Well, I think that that was what she really loved. And I mean, and I mean, there is something very compelling about that, that in one minute you're talking to the president and next to the peasant woman. But I think that also Marie did not see herself as a great analyst or policy person. I mean, obviously, she read hugely she had a i think she had a very deep understanding particularly of the arab world but she it was interesting that she didn't feel confident to write you know opinion pieces and so on she was very much the reporter on the ground and the person who could get people to talk to her and it didn't matter at what level they were and she was very charismatic and people liked talking to her i want to go back to this risk question and she there's several moments where she either lies to officials to get into spaces that journalists have been barred from, or she stays when everyone else has airlifted out. Talk to me about those choices. Well, I think that East Timor was very important for her. So, you know, East Timor was an Indonesian colony. And then in 1999, the people of East Timor voted for independence. And Marie went there for that vote, as did many other journalists. And 
the Indonesian government was not willing to accept that um, people's vote for independence. And they basically started up a militia, which was extremely dangerous and violent with machetes and clubs and so on, which terrorized the people and also terrorized the journalists. The BBC correspondent was very nearly killed. Um, it was such a volatile situation. Most newspapers and TV, the editors pulled the journalists out. Marie was in the UN compound, which was the one safe-ish place, and a lot of refugees had fled into the compound. But it was not armed, and the UN was feeling that they couldn't really protect all these people. Now, Marie, being Marie, did not consult her foreign editor. And she it didn't really occur to her to leave. She just thought, well, this is the story and I've got to be here. And she called her foreign editor and said, oh, you know, journalists have left, but I've decided to stay. And he was like, well, who are you with? And she said, well, I'm with Minka and Irina, these Dutch journalists. And he said, well, where have all the men gone? And she says, oh, they've all left. And this is very classic Marie's pause. And she says, I guess they don't make men like they used to. Now, that is a classic Marie thing. It's also totally unfair because I happen to know that there were two journalists who went into the mountains with the two Marie's guerrillas and they happened to be men. And there were also volunteers, UN uh, staff who stayed behind as well, but they were really acting as human shields. And it was incredibly brave of all of those foreigners who stayed behind. They knew that if they left, the militia would be, come straight over the fence and kill those people. And... They stayed to protect those people. And the thing with Marie then was she said later in an interview that she felt that she would have been abandoning the people if she had left. And to her, that was unthinkable. She had shared their food. She had been with them. Morally, she couldn't do that. And in that sense, I think that her own personal safety was was less significant to her. She called her sister and said, look, I might die, but I have no choice. The ABC, Australian Broadcasting, had left a satellite phone behind and she broadcast a lot. She wasn't just writing for the Sunday paper. She didn't feel that this could wait for the Sunday paper. She was broadcasting. And her reporting and her decision to stay, again, had an impact. And there was a lot of um, pressure on the Indonesian government, partly because of the reporting. And after a while, they caved in and agreed that a peacekeeping force led by the Australians could come in. Marie was very proud of that. She was very proud of what she'd done in East Timor. And I think that that's an interesting question, though. You talk a little bit about how she didn't want to write opinion, but she had a very strong moral core, and that was around reporting. And I think that's really interesting because we've moved into a space now in journalism where people are very comfortable with opinion, and the morality has shifted a little bit. That's right. And I think that also the other thing which is really important to understand about Marie is that she was not ideological. So, for example, when she was in Kosovo, she was very attracted to the underdog. That was always her reporting. And so she reported very sympathetically on the Kosovar Albanians who were being oppressed and massacred by the Serbs. And for that reason, she sympathized with the Kosovo Liberation Army who were trying to push the Serbs out and rescue their own people. However, when the tables turned and the Kosovo Liberation Army were in power and started to take revenge. She reported just as passionately on atrocities which were committed by the KLA or by individual Kosovars against the Serbs who had stayed behind, many of whom were little old ladies and people, you know, women left to, to guard the land and so on. So she wasn't ideological in that sense, but she said, you have a mass grave and a massacre. I don't think that there are two sides to that story. That's what happened. She takes tremendous risk again in Chechnya. So this is the end of 1999, December. It's the second Chechen war. And 
It is merciless. Now, I also covered the Second Chechen War, but like most journalists, I went to the neighbouring Autonomous Republic of Ingushetia and I reported on the refugees. And then with permission from the Russians, I made short forays over into Chechnya. Not Marie. Marie went in from Georgia with the rebels, which was incredibly dangerous. And a couple of other journalists did that too. And there was a point where the car she was in was shot out from underneath her. She and uh, the photographer she was with had to hide in this field from these um, jet fighters which were coming overhead and bombing them the whole time. And, you know, we're in the middle of winter. There's not even any cover. The, the trees have bare branches. But then, you know, she'd done all the reporting she could do. It was time to go back, but the road was cut by Russian bombing. So she was stuck. She was trapped. And so she she walked. You know, Marie was incredibly physically tough. She was strong. She was wiry. She was tall. She loved to sail. She really had a huge physical strength. Even though she smoked two and a half packs of cigarettes and, a day. And in, she said she regretted every cigarette she'd ever smoked when she was, you know, climbing up these silvery, skiddy waterfalls and, you know, going into the icy water up to her hips and so on. And they finally get across the Georgian border. And one of the diary entries which I find so poignant in a sense is that she lists you know all the things that they have to do you know it's not worth going to try and get water they can just uh, because of the calories used they can just you know quench their thirst with the snow and they found some moldy onions and garlic and a little bit of flour which they can sort of mix together and maybe they can eat the red berries and this is Christmas Eve 1999 and then she carries on with the diary entry and she's thinking should be in Paris cooking Christmas dinner and Oh, my mother's going to be worrying about me. She's going to have such a terrible Christmas. And by then she had married Patrick Bishop, who was a fellow journalist, and divorced him and remarried somebody else and separated from him and was back with Patrick again, her first husband. She writes, you know, does he really love me? I, I know I love him. And, and it's actually such a poignant image of this incredibly tough woman who has endured what most of us could never endure, sitting in this hut thinking what every woman has thought at some point in her life, does he really love me? This episode of First Person is brought to you by the Fletcher School's Master of International Business program at Tufts University, where the MBA meets the world. Today's business professionals should be well-versed not only in management and strategy, but also in the complex issues that impact businesses today. That way, they can understand not just how markets work, but why they work. From social impact to economic stability to environmental factors, MIB students gain contextual intelligence, helping them confront the complicated realities of an interconnected world. Learn more and view a virtual information session at fletcher.tufts.edu slash business. I'm curious if you think that what her career would have been like had it begun now when we aren't sending as many foreign journalists out there, when there are so many people taking you know, cell phone videos, which are changing the nature of reporting on the ground and putting yourself at risk like that. Well, I think that Marie, till the end of her life, believed very strongly in eyewitness reporting. And there are journalists now who also believe that the the cell phone video, it's fine. It amplifies our understanding of what's going on, if it's carefully verified. But Marie sort of wasn't 
interested in that. She was interested in being there. And she felt very strongly that that was the reason to be a journalist, to be where history is happening, to bear witness. And Marie is really affected over time from being in these zones, from seeing these stories and telling these stories. Talk to us a little bit about that. That's right. For this, we have to talk about Sri Lanka. So Mm -hmm. in 2001, Marie went to Sri Lanka to report on the war between the Sri Lankan government and the Tamil Tiger rebels. And she went across the front line and went in. And to be honest, it wasn't a great story. She didn't get what the Tigers had promised her. It was a bit of a bust. But coming back out, crossing the front line, the group she was with was ambushed. And she dropped to the ground. And then she had this horrendous choice because she knew that the soldiers were out there, and so her choice was to lie still, in which case they might come and find her and shoot her, to crawl away, in which case they might see the movement and shoot her, or to take her chance and get up, which she did. So she got up and she shouted, American, American journalist, and they fired directly at her. And then she felt this pain in her eye and blood trickling down and she could scarcely breathe, and she had been shot in the eye and the chest. Now... She lost the sight in her left eye because of that injury. She, you know, she survived. But that moment haunted her, the moment before she was injured. Mm -hmm. And she would have a terrible nightmare, you know, which would never resolve. What should she do? Should she lie still? Should she crawl away? Should she stand up? That nightmare would just go on and on and on and on. The eye patch actually became a badge of her bravery. It became her trademark. And she also had one studied with rhinestones for parties. And she actually rather liked the eye patch in the end. It became part of her. And I think that that was her, you know, facing up to the fragility of her body. Mm -hmm. But it was much more difficult for her to face up to the fragility of her mind. Mm -hmm. And she drank far too much. She self-medicated. And, you know, the years went by and she was treated for post-traumatic stress disorder. She was treated at a hospital in London. And they gave her coping strategies. And I don't think you can say that she recovered, but she learned how to manage it. But she always drank too much and she always smoked too much. And so she was never really 100%, I guess you could say. You note in the beginning of the book that there's a photo of the two of you and Janine after the Janine incursion, and, and you're dusty, but you're happy. So would it have made her happy to stay back? Well, I think that that's the problem. So people say, you know, she should have been taken off the road. And I totally understand that point of view. Was she making the wrong choices? You see, I don't think she was. She was doing some pretty amazing reporting. And she did incredible reporting in the Arab Spring, in Egypt and in Libya. And it's so hard to imagine Marie anywhere except out there reporting those stories because she was so committed to that and she loved it and she was highly competitive. I mean, let's not, you know, portray Marie as a saint. Mm -hmm. She was a highly competitive journalist who wanted to be the boldest and the best and get the story first and get the best story. You know, the Sunday Times would have eight pages of foreign news and Marie would, Marie's stories would be, you know, 3,000 words long with fantastic pictures and sidebars and graphics. It was tremendous. All the decision makers would read it and it was a very popular newspaper. Her stories were really getting out there. You know, now Sunday Times will have three pages of foreign news at best and the longest stories are 800 or 1,000 words long. So, you know, these are the glory days of reporting and she loved that and nothing would discourage her from that. You write that she threw tremendous parties. Oh, the best in London. 
Yeah, she threw tremendous parties, vodka martinis, gate crashers, poets, politicians, journalists, film stars. We miss Marie's parties. And she had enormous martinis sent her way after her eye. Yeah, well, that's right. When she, uh, when she lost the sight in her eye and she was re- recuperating in New York, one of her friends from East Timor, Minka, made sure that on behalf of the people of East Timor that she would have this vodka martini because there had been a line in her copy which said that what she really wanted now was a cigarette and a vodka martini, so they made sure she got one uh, delivered to her room in, uh, in the hotel in New York. The book is so much about her life, so much so that when you get to the end, even though you know it's coming, it's quite devastating. This is February 2012. So... The peaceful uprising, which there was in Syria, had by then started to morph into civil war. And people who had been peacefully demonstrating had been shot by government forces, and then they in turn had started to arm themselves and fire back. And this is the beginning of the long, tragic war that we we see to get today. And quite a lot of journalists were in Beirut interviewing refugees and so on, and I was there, so was Marie. And we had dinner with... um, two friends, Jim Muir of the BBC and Neil McFarker of the New York Times. And the talk was all about being smuggled into Syria to get to Babar Amar, which was the centre of the story at the time, under siege by President Bashar al-Assad's forces. And the three of us said, it's beyond our danger threshold, it's just too much. And Marie just said, anyway, it's what we do. And so she was smuggled in with Paul Conroy, the photographer. And... um, there was a storm drain which you could walk through and several journalists had gone in and come out. But what they had said was, soon it will not be possible to come out. But Marie felt committed to going in and Paul wanted to go in too and they did. And so they, and it was a two-day journey in and very dangerous. The point of the story for Marie was that Assad was saying that everybody in his enclave was a terrorist. That's what he called the rebels. And Marie did an incredible story called The Widow's Basement, which was about the women and children who were sheltering from the bombardment from Assad's forces. So she gave the lie to what the government was saying, and this was very important for her. And the other story she did was about the field clinic where the injured people went where they had operations with no anaesthetic and there was no doctor. It was a veterinarian who was doing the operations. And then the rebels said, look, this is too dangerous. You have to leave, and they made them leave. They said that the government forces are going to come in in the next day or so. So she left and filed that story, and then she felt guilty. And she felt that she had abandoned people in the way that she had not abandoned the people of East Timor. And you could say that's self-aggrandizement, and I think that that might be true, but that's what she felt. And she was determined to go back in. So again, she didn't consult a foreign editor. Paul was not sure, but... Paul would not have let Marie go in by herself. He's an ex-soldier. He just wouldn't have it in him not to do that. So they went back in. And when they got back in, the situation was really terrible. And there was sort of bombardment, you know, rockets coming in every few seconds. And she realized that the story wasn't going to wait till Sunday. She didn't know she'd survive till Sunday. I think it was a Tuesday. So she wanted to broadcast. And so she broadcast to CNN and the BBC and to my programme, Channel 4 News. And so she'd sent me an email saying that she'd come back in. She said, I'm not sure it's my best move, but so anger-making, it's worth it. Well, I was pretty angry too. I was angry with her for going back in. And I said, you know, what are you doing going back in? And she said, Lindsay, it's the worst we've ever seen. I know, but what's your exit strategy? And she said, that's just it. We don't have one. I'm working on it now. And she was killed by a government mortar 
targeting the media centre where they were staying several hours later. It's a devastating moment, and it's made even more horrifying by the fact that the family feels, and in the book you seem to have evidence of, that it was targeted. It was not random. That's right. So this is a media centre which is run by the rebels. And Marie and Paul are not the only journalists there. French journalists had also uh, turned up and one Spanish journalist. And when Marie was killed, a young French photographer, Remy Oshlik, mm-hmm. who was only 28, he was also killed. And Paul Conroy, the photographer, was badly injured, as was a French journalist reporting for Le Figaro. And Marie's uh, younger sister, Kat, has taken out a civil suit through the, with the help of the Centre for Justice and Accountability here in Washington. They have collected testimony from defectors who say that Marie's broadcasts were intercepted by Assad's intelligence services and that there was also human intelligence, in other words, a spy, and they were therefore able to triangulate and know exactly where the media centre and the journalists were. And that was why they targeted it, because the journalists were telling the story which they didn't want the world to know. They wanted to say that it was just terrorists in there and not these women and children who were suffering and not this baby who Marie described, um, a baby who had, had died from the shelling. And defectors also said there was actually celebrations after Marie and Remy were killed and that they, they mentioned the woman with the eye patch, the, you know, who they said was blind. Her broadcasts may have endangered her. Absolutely. Was she not conscious enough of how she could be pinpointed? There were signals coming from that media center anyway because the rebels were sending out footage the whole time. So you could say that they were already sending out footage anyway. But yes, obviously, in hindsight, look, she should not have gone back in. But she felt committed to that story and she went back in. The world has become ever more dangerous for journalists. Do we need to reconsider how we cover conflict like this? Well, I think that Marie's death had a huge impact. And then the following year, Jim Foley and uh, Stephen Sotlov were kidnapped by the Islamic State in northern Syria and murdered. So there was a huge reassessment. And I think that for a lot of editors felt that it was not safe or possible to send reporters into Syria. But, you know, you look at the figures from the Committee to Protect Journalists, fewer than... 10 foreign reporters being killed in Syria and more than 100 Syrian journalists. And so in a sense, you have a transfer of risk because we rely more and more on journalists from the countries involved. And they are risking their lives, putting themselves at great risk. And that, I think, brings up all sorts of complex moral dilemmas. And I think they get harder and harder as governments act with impunity over the killing of journalists. What do you think the legacy is of Colvin? I think Marie's legacy is her incredible reporting. And I think it's about commitment to the story and about telling the truth and about being brave. She lived at a time when reporting had an impact, arguably you could say more than it has now. But she utterly believed in being there and bearing witness. So she would could always say that if they, governments, didn't do anything to stop the slaughter. They could never say they didn't know. Mm -hmm. They knew what was going on because Marie was there and because Marie had told them. I think that's a very important part of her legacy. Reading the book, I felt that I knew her and I'd only known of her, uh, but now I feel I know her and I think that was part of your goal. Thank you very much. 
That's journalist and author Lindsay Hilsom. Her new book is titled In Extremis, The Life and Death of War Correspondent Marie Colvin. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs, with additional help this week from Ben Soloway. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. 